So we are in a series on happiness. <laughs> Such an interesting dichotomy right now. Um, we're three weeks into it. Uh, if you're new here, I welcome you. I'm glad you're here. I hope this did not happen to you. I hope you weren't invited to church this morning because someone said, hey, you need to come to church this Sunday. We're doing a series on happiness and you really need it. Come to church. But if it did, that's okay. Because we do. We all need it. So let me begin this morning by a quote by John Milton from Paradise Lost. And this is what he says. The mind is its own place. And in itself, it can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Do you understand that? What John Milton is saying is this, that there is an ability for our brain, no matter our circumstances, to make really good things. Someone that's just living in Eden and has paradise and beauty and popularity, even though they're in the middle of such a good spot, a heaven, they're miserable. Or people that are in really hard situations, even in the middle of that difficulty. Viktor Frankl, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is an example. Even Holocaust situations, they're able to, even in that situation, make a heaven of it. Right? It's amazing. So there's a book I read, it's called Self and Soul by a University of Virginia professor, where he kind of hits on this stuff. And he went and visited this group of people. They're very unique. They were wealthy at one point. And they made this decision to take all of their wealth and give it away. And then to go live in a third world country like a third world person. So select group of people. So he wanted to see like what led you to that kind of a decision. And he visited them. And this is what he said. He said, the unifying characteristic of all these people he visited was one thing. He said, when I was with them, they laughed a lot. How cool is that? In what we would consider a hell, right? Poor, not enough to eat, difficulty, unsanitary, whatever it might be. And yet they laughed a lot. It's amazing. So what is it that determines your happiness? Is it the amount in your bank account? Is it if your kids rise up in the morning and call you blessed? My kids rise up in the morning and they call me something. Not always blessed. Is it if your football team wins or even better, if the team you hate loses? Is it when the sun's out like today? Amen, that's it. Is it when the snowpack at Ashland is just right? Is that what determines your happiness? No. What determines your happiness is the one and a half pounds of gray matter between your ears. That's what determines your happiness. And some of that one and a half pounds is genetic. That there are people that are just predisposed to being happy, right? So there's a book called The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt, great book. And he argues this, he says, happy people 
have won the cerebral lottery. That their genetics just, somehow they all came in right and now they just, man, they're happy. It's almost like um, your physique. So I was born skinny. I am still skinny. It does not matter how much I eat or if I work out or I don't work out, I stay scrawny skinny, okay? I used to hate that as a kid. I prayed that God would give me a dad bod. Please, God. It didn't happen. I just, this is the way I am. And it's genetics. There's other people that they look at a snicker bar and they gain 10 pounds. Right? Okay. Some of that's just not in our control. That's just, hey, this, my metabolic rate, whatever it is, it's different for me. Okay? When it comes to happiness... Scientists found it's about 50-50. 50 percent of it is your genetic disposition. You were born a certain way, you process things a certain way, that's the way you were born. But then there's 50 percent about that. Some numbers vary depending on who you read. There's 50 percent that you and I can control, that there are things that you can do or not do that will lead to Happiness, like diet and exercise, right? Everyone can control diet and exercise. You may not control your metabolic rate or how you digest food or how you process it, but you certainly can control diet and exercise, okay? So when it comes to this control, the bio makes this clear. Coronavirus, ah! (laughs) Sorry, so random. (laughs) where's my Lysol (laughs) okay (laughs) center (laughs) the Bible when it comes to the 50% that we can control the Bible I believe if you read it carefully says this train your brain the you, that 50% that you and I can control, you can train how this thing does its job for you and for me, all right? Now, people make excuses like, well, you know, I'm just not naturally happy. I can't be happy. The Bible would say, deny yourself. But that doesn't matter. Deny yourself. Or, hey, well, I don't have the power to do it. You know, I don't, whatever. No, the Bible says, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ which strengthens you, which includes, all things would include rejoicing, being happy, living a life that you're supposed to live, all right? So for a minute, let's just stop and ask some questions about ourselves. Do you have to believe everything your brain tells you? Has your brain ever told you something that was wrong? Yeah, right? Ultimately, when you think about your brain, when you think about thought process, who's in charge of your brain? Who's in charge of it? Is it like up on top? Does it have the captain's role? Or is there another thing that should have the captain's role? Has the brain ever taken you on a ride you did not like? Are you allowed to get off? Are you like, you know what? I'm not riding this anymore. I'm sorry. I want to get off. Why? Why is there such a battle inside of us? I talk to a lot of people. Why is there such a battle inside of us for happiness? 
Why is there this battle? If we evolved, and last week I just read to you all the good stuff that comes from happiness. You live longer. You have fewer health problems. You stay, you get married, you stay married. I mean, the list is unbelievable. Everything good. If we purely evolved, why didn't we evolve to be happy if it gives us all that good stuff? Why is there this battle inside of us that something else is going on? I think the Bible gives us the answers, right? So that's what we're gonna try to tackle. And today is difficult. I'm gonna tell you that. But if you don't get this, if you don't get the mind right, everything else will not work. It's most important. You have to understand the one and a half pounds between your ears if you're ever going to move through this. So here's my big idea. My big idea is this. You are not your brain. You are a believer. Okay? Keep that in your head. You are not your brain. It is something else. It's useful. It's good. It's a tool. But you are ultimately, the Bible calls you, your identity is believer now. And that's the difference. So the first text I want to go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And I'll say this. The Bible authors were super aware of the brain, what we would call today psychology, way ahead of their time. They understood this thing. And many of the ideas that are biblical are now kind of in process of people think, hey, that actually works. So check this out. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. What no ear has seen, what no eye has seen. Ears don't see. So that would definitely be what no eye has seen, my eyes are going bad. <laughs> my eyes can't see anymore. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Is that good? That's super good. God has super good things in store for his people that love him. These things, verse 10, God has revealed, past tense, to us through the Spirit. This is not pie in the sky out there. This is past tense. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand. Where do you understand things? One and a half pounds between your ears. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. What are the things freely given us by God? Verse nine, stuff you can't even imagine. Better than you and I could ever imagine. And we know it by his spirit. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Here's what Paul's getting at. There are natural people and there are spiritual people and they're different. That the 
natural people lack something that spiritual people have been given. The spirit. So they don't have the ability. They don't have the equipment to think, to understand spiritual stuff. They lack the equipment. It'd be like this. Here's an example. Right now in this room, there are thousands of voices. Not just my echo going back and forth a thousand times. There are thousands of pictures and texts flying through the air. But if you're going to see those pictures or hear those voices, you need a certain piece of equipment, right? Your cell phone. Programmed to the right phone number. And when that happens, your phone rings right in the middle of service, (laughs) which is awesome, right? I love seeing the reaction of people when their phone rings. My favorite is what I call the quick draw. Just people that are like, wham, wham, it's gone. Like just a flash. You're like, oh, you'd be like a gunfighter in the 1850s. <laughs> and then the deer in headlights, just someone just sitting frozen. Not mine. Everyone around them is moving like, whose is it? Not mine. And then the pointer. The pointer is the best. Yours? Yours? <laughs> you got to have the equipment to get to see if you were to hear what's going on. That's what Paul's getting at. There's TV, TV signals and radio signals, all that. The right equipment allows you to pick it up. Paul's argument is that as a believer, when you accepted Jesus Christ by faith, believing he is your savior, died for your sins, become part of his kingdom, the moment that happens, you are given some brand new equipment. Now, this is not something new that Paul invented. You can go back to Jeremiah 33 or Ezekiel 36 that says this, when you believe you're given a new heart, that God can actually write his will on that heart. You're given a new new spirit, excuse me, not not a spirit that went astray anymore, but his spirit that keeps you on the straight and narrow, okay? So here's the dichotomy that you have to think through. Has your brain ever been wrong? Has it ever taken you on a trip of like fear and worry that a relationship's doomed, that somebody hates you, and then you find out later, a week later, that you were wrong? Right? Did that affect you? Did it affect your happiness? Did it affect your joy? Did it affect your ability to laugh and have a good time? Absolutely. So what the Bible is going to demonstrate, I think, and we'll try to get some solid biblical evidence of this, is this, you and I, because of this unique thing that we've been given as God's kids, spiritual beings now, we can actually fact check the Bible. Excuse me. Fact check our brain by the Bible. That this spiritual book allows us the ability to almost step out and look at ourselves and say, wait a second, is that true? Now I had so much data for this, that I actually had to split this message in two. Or what happens to me is I turn into a chipmunk in the last 10 minutes, where it's just like rapid fire. So I don't want to do that to you. So we'll get to the real practical stuff next week. This week, I just want to give you the Bible, that the authors of scripture knew that as believers in Yahweh, you have this incredible power given to you. Okay. So we'll go through four texts. And I had a whole bunch more that demonstrate this to you. All right, first text, one of my favorites. First Kings, chapter 19. This is the prophet Elijah. Ever heard of the prophet Elijah? 
one of the most impacting people in the Bible. Miracles, power, unbelievable. But look where Elijah is now. Verse four, 1 Kings 19. But he himself, look at that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the equipment. Quick draw, Psh, gone. <laughs> but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. Now, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Is he happy or sad? Bummed, depressed, and suicidal. So here's the backstory. Elijah in chapter 17 bursts on the scene. Because of the sins of Ahab and Jezebel, two wicked people, the king and queen, he prays that it would not rain. It doesn't rain for one, two, three and a half years, drought. He's fed by a bird bringing him bread and then by a widow who uses her last little piece of oil and, and meal to make him some food and it just lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. You guys know the story, miracle. Okay, so it's been rough three and a half years. After three and a half years, he says, okay, that's it. We're gonna figure this thing out. Who is the real God? Because Israel had left serving Yahweh and was worshiping this God named Baal. They believed Baal was in charge of the weather. There's no rain. In charge of fun and in charge of fertility, babies. So you can imagine how worship of Baal might go. Actually, don't imagine that. So watch MTV, you'll see most of it, right? So that's, that's Baal. And they had, they had left Yahweh and they were worshiping Baal. So what Elijah says is this, listen, let's have a duel. Let's go up on Mount Carmel. You bring your crew, I'll be up there. And we'll pray. You'll pray to the God Baal that he'll bring down fire and burn this sacrifice. And I'll pray to Yahweh that he'll bring down fire. So the worshipers of Baal have first shot at it, 450 of them. They try and try and try. They dance around for hours and hours. They cut themselves, nothing happens. Elijah actually mocks them. He says, cry louder. I think your God's going to the bathroom. It's literally what he says. <laughs> and then after they're done, Elijah gets up there. He prays a 38 word prayer and fire comes down from heaven consumes the sacrifice and everybody says Yahweh's God not Baal so Elijah is stoked he's like yes he's so happy that he runs from Mount Carmel all the way down to the capital city of Samaria a marathon that is not what I do when I get happy I'm like I'm so happy I'm gonna read a book he runs a marathon okay he gets to the capital city of Samaria thinking there's going to be either revival or God's bringing judgment. Neither happens. In fact, the wicked queen Jezebel says, you're going to die today. I've got a price on your head and you're dying today. So he's super sad and depressed. Guess what he does? Runs another marathon down to the desert. He's a mixed up puppy. And that's where we pick him up right here. He's so bummed. God, are you kidding me? 
I've done all this stuff. I was expecting revival or expecting judgment and nothing happens. Kill me. I'm depressed, kill me. What does God do? Verse five. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. How did this angel deal with a suicidal, depressed human? Did he say, hey, I bring you glad tidings of great joy? Mm-mm. Did he say, hey, you need to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice? Nope. Elijah, you need to repent of your depression and suicide? Nope. Hey, Elijah, do you want to talk about it? What's he say? You need lunch and a nap. <laughs> exactly how I deal with Myron, my six-year-old, when he gets all upset. Bro, you need lunch and a nap, right? You're all worked up, bro. It's time for lunch and a nap. I love this story on depression. How different God is from us. Because often when people are going through depression or they're suicidal, what we'll do is we'll say, hey, you just need to read your Bible more. Hey, you just need to pray more. Hey, you need to count your blessings. All super good stuff, but it's not what God says. God says, you need some really good food. Try some angel food cake. (laughs) And you need a nap, man. This is a divine diagnosis. Elijah, you've been running hard for three and a half years. You're whooped. You just ran two marathons. You're whooped. Bro, sleep and eat some good food. That's what you need. Listen, sometimes depression can be physical. It can be. That means it's time to go visit your crazy uncle in Wolf Creek with his essential oils and his pyramid and whatever and just say, hey, bro, do you have anything here? Like there is a point to some of that. Like, hey, am I off somehow? Go see a good doctor that that will look at all these things. There's no doubt about it. But guess what? This doesn't cure him of his depression. You're not going to cure somebody of depression and suicide in a quick 50-minute time with them. You need to say, I'm going to walk with you for a while on this. I'm going to call you tomorrow morning. We're going to talk again. I call it, you give them the gospel, you give them some time. You give them the gospel, give them some more time. You keep doing that saying, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you like God does here. All right, so this is just the beginning of God's divine diagnosis. So then he goes down to Mount Horeb and we pick it up, verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Super simple question. What are you doing here? Look at Elijah's answer. He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only left and they seek my life to take it away. Did he answer God's question? Hey, Elijah, why are you in this cave? Right, he just gives him this prepared agenda. It should have been because I'm super depressed and suicidal. God, I thought there was gonna be revival. I thought great things were gonna happen. He doesn't do it. He doesn't doesn't talk straight with God. 
going on? And he said, go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. And he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's like he just hit record, right? Same answer. Still not answering the question because he's got this agenda in him twice. He was so stuck in his head right now. That's what you're supposed to see in this. Elijah's so stuck in his head, there's, he can't get out of it. God comes in an earthquake. He comes in wind. He comes in fire. It still doesn't break him out of this thing that's happening inside his head. He is stuck in his head. Sometimes we're depressed because we're depressed. Sometimes we're upset because we're upset. Sometimes we're sad because we're sad. And we get stuck. It's, it's self-centeredness. And self-centeredness comes in two flavors. It's I'm so great or I'm so terrible. And Elijah's stuck in it right now. Uh, uh, uh. So what does God do? Verse 15. And Yahweh said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. Guess what God does? He fact checks Elijah, who twice has said, I'm the only one, I'm it. God says, you're wrong. There are 7,000 just like you. You've got the wrong story. Your brain is selling you something. Stop it, there's no way. And then he also says, get out of this cave, right? You, you can't stay in this cave anymore. You need to get out of the cave. So there's this saying, to get energy, you've got to give energy. So some people, they get depressed and they get down on their energy because if they just get out and do something, they'd actually get more energy. Then God says, be useful. I got purpose for you and get a buddy. By the way, if you read this through, it's incredible. It's a divine diagnosis for getting out of depression. And it's been backed up by science over and over. I'll give it to you, even though there's one that we want to really center in on. This is it. Number one, rest. Sometimes you just need to rest. Take a nap, rest. Number two, nutrition. What you eat matters. Get some good food in you. Number three, exercise. We've learned now that exercise, guess what it does for you? Releases these endorphins that make you feel happy, right? Number four, fact check yourself. Wait a second. Is what I'm thinking right now correct? 
Number five, change your surroundings. Sometimes you're in a cave and you need to get out of that cave. You need to change your surroundings. Purpose, number six. Elijah, I've got purpose for you. Go down and anoint this guy. Go down and do this. You're useful to me. I still need you. Have mission. Go to the pregnancy care center. If you want to help the unborn, go to the pregnancy care center. Go to the gospel rescue mission. Get mission. Be involved in safe families. Do have mission. And the number seven, community. You need a buddy. I'm going to introduce you to this guy named Elisha. He's going to be your BFF from now on out. Because those things are huge. That, that's a divine recipe for getting out of depression. But the one thing we're looking at today, we'll look at a lot of that next week. The one thing is this. He fact-checked him. Twice God asks him this question, trying to break the mind cycle. And then God just has, has to say, finally, all right, bro, you're wrong. You're not the only one. I've got 7,000 just like you. All right? So that's example one. Example two. This one will be a lot faster. Psalm 42. If you want a brilliant book on the authors of scripture, the people of God, processing emotions, it's Psalms. Psalms is brilliant. I'm loving it more and more and more as I've been reading it lately. So check out this Psalm, Psalm 42, verse one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Is the psalmist happy or sad? He's crying all day and all night. Sad. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You ever said that? God, this is super hard. Where are you? Hiddenness of God. These things I remember. I'm playing them over in my head. As I pour out my soul, then check this out. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Here's the psalmist is saying. Man, I'm tore up right now emotionally. I've been crying and crying and crying. I can't stop crying. I want to be with songs of praise and gladness and all this good stuff, but I'm not. Oh, God. What's going to happen? So look at verse 5. This is incredible to me. And he uses this term soul. We think of soul as like a different way. The Hebrew word soul, here's where it comes from. It comes from Genesis 2 verse 7. God forms the man out of dirt, breathes his ruach into the dirt, and it becomes a nefesh. So that's what we are. We are literally nefeshes or the Hebrew word, or the English word here, soul. So he's talking to his essence. He's talking to who he is. So verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Guess what he's doing right now? Fact checking his brain. Okay, hold on a second, brain. What's up with you? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I love that. He fact checks himself. I don't know why I'm feeling this way. So I'm going to start, start fact checking myself. Why? Why am I this way? Why am I downtrodden? And then he gives himself the Bible. 
Hope in God. Praise God. I will praise him. I have the power over my mind. It's not going to control me anymore. I'll make decisions to praise, to sing, to worship because I'm in control. Right? Here's another one, New Testament. Some people will say, well, Matt, that's Old Testament. Okay? Here's one of the best texts in the Bible of someone going back and forth with this battle. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Remember how I began this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural and the spiritual. But I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, you got this spiritual thing called the law, but then you've got me over here, fleshly sinful. Verse 15, I love this phrase. For I do not understand my own actions. Everyone ever felt that way? I don't know what I'm doing, what I'm doing. Man, what's wrong with me? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Why do I do this stuff? Why do I think that way? Why did I act that way toward my spouse? Why did I act that way toward my kids? Ah, right? Verse 17. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you see what he just did here? As a spiritual being, there's a battle. There's a battle of wills. There's a battle of actions. Why do we have this fight? Why is there this battle? Because of Genesis chapter three. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened to the human heart was a serpent wrapped itself around the human heart and injects venom in it all the time that leads to bad actions and bad stuff. That's this battle right here. And every human faces it. I don't know why I do these things. I don't want to do these things. Okay, so verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another war, waging war, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You can reread this text. It's brilliant. And it's a battle. I want to live this kind of life and I'm being ripped off from it. What do I do? Chapter eight, verse two. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's what Paul's arguing in this whole section. He's saying there was a natural way to live where you're just in this tension and this battle. But when you become a believer, you are given a new spirit, a new power source that allows your spirit now to be the master over your brain. Your brain has a new master. It's called the spirit of God. And the Spirit of God sets you free from it and its desires and the way that it thinks. Okay? So there's one more text just to prove this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. What kind of power? Divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought, the way that I am thinking, captive to obey Christ. That's the power that you and I have now. That we've been given as believers. We're not natural anymore. We're spiritual beings. And we have the ability to fact check our brains with scripture. We have that ability. Okay? So there's this term that's used. It's thrown around. It's called cognitive fusion. Cognitive fusion means this. Buying whatever your brain is selling. So your brain is like this. The brain flashes across these text messages to you, right? And you have a chance to like think about the text message. It, 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 it just flashes across to you. And you have, cognitive fusion is, you buy whatever your brain says. So your brain says, man, she hates me now. Ugh. And you're miserable. Right? I'm never going to change. And you're miserable. I'm such a failure. And you're miserable. I'll never get off drugs. And you're miserable. I'll never get married. And you're miserable. The world's going to end tomorrow, and you're miserable. My kids are going to grow up to be screwed up, and you're miserable. I'm a mutant. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm boring, and you're miserable. This craving is too great for me, and you're miserable. That's the text your brain always sends you. Cognitive fusion just says, okay, well, if my brain said it, I guess it must be right. No way. The Bible says, you and I, like Elijah, you and I, like the psalmist, you and I, like the Apostle Paul, are spiritual beings now. And we have the ability to fact check those thoughts. We have the ability to say, uh-uh, I've been given the mind of Christ. Uh-uh, I don't think like that anymore. I'm not a slave to that. I am a son, a daughter of King Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's not how I live. It takes no faith to believe the lies your brain sells you. It takes faith to believe this book right here. And we say, this book is truth for me. Okay? So one last text, because this is where we're headed next week. It's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, what are you testing? You're fact-checking your brain. You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When you become a believer, here's what happens to you in an instant. You're given a new heart, and new spirit. But that new heart and new spirit still have an old mind that has to be renewed, that has to be disciplined, okay? So the, the believer, the brain of a believer is like this. It's like your front lawn. And there are seeds all the time blowing in, right? You as a believer get to decide these seeds, their thoughts, what seeds get to grow and what seeds must grow, must go, right? And the Bible is the fertilizer for that. 
So the Bible, it's like this, weed and feed. You ever use weed and feed? I know it's like horrible, it kills everything, but you know, it's terrible. The entire planet is going bad because of weed and feed, but it's an amazing stuff, right? Like the bad stuff dies and the good stuff grows. That's the Bible. We renew our minds by the weed and feed of scripture. We take our brains and we say, hold on a second, brain. I don't know if I believe what you're selling me. Instead, I go to scripture and I renew my mind to prove what is good and acceptable and perfect in the midst of a broken, tore up world. And it's training. It takes training. It takes effort. It's yielding to faith, saying, all my thoughts must bow to scripture, period. I'm gonna train and look at scripture and evaluate if my brain is telling me the truth or not. And that's what we do on Sundays. That's why we're here. We're training our brains. Let's think like Jesus. Let's think like him. Because he was anointed with the oil of gladness above everybody else. Okay? And the Bible makes these unbelievable promises to us. Right? It promises you and me peace. Where do you experience peace at? In your big toe? Right here. But it's not just a peace. The Bible promises peace that passes all understanding, right? A spiritual kind of peace that's above anything else. Philippians 4, verse 7. The Bible promises joy. Where do you experience joy? Right here. But it's just to say joy, 1 Peter 1, 8 says, it's a joy that's indescribable. What does that mean? Your brain can't wrap its mind around how good it is. That's the joy, Right? The Bible promises you and me life, but not just life. It's life more abundant. That's Jesus, John 10, 10. The Bible promises you and me love. Ephesians 3, 19 says, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's better. It's bigger. It's richer. All of those things have to do with this one and a half pounds inside of your head, between your ears. And the Bible says, listen, new heart, new spirit, retrain your brain and get joy and peace and love in a way that you've never experienced before. And that's what we're in this series for. So Jesus today, some have come in here this morning like Elijah's, depressed, disenchanted with you, Wondering where you're at. Wondering what your plan is. And they need soul food today. Some are like the psalmist. Tears have been their food day and night. And they need soul food. Some are like Paul. They can't even figure out themselves. Like what in the world? I don't know why I did what I did yesterday. That's not me. What's happening? And they need soul food. They need spiritual weapons because this is a spiritual war. So I pray for us as we go to the table today. I pray that you would feed our souls. And we'd be a group of people that fact check our brains with the Bible. That this is truth. This is what we model our lives on. This is what we choose 
to say is real life. The rest is a mirage. We don't want to be conformed to this world, but we want to be conformed to you through the renewing of our mind and through scripture. So feed us today at the table, I pray. I ask this in your name. Amen.